just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. No matter the weather or time of year, homelessness is a crisis in our city. And we all want answers. We want things to move quickly. We want to see solutions. Like, could the Salt Lake City mayor declare a state of emergency? What could sanctioned camping look like? Where will people go this winter? I asked the city's director of homelessness policy. It's Monday, August 7th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Andrew Johnston, you are Salt Lake City's Director of Homeless Policy. And homelessness, as you and I both know, is one of our city, county, and state's most critical issues. But sometimes it can feel like things move so slowly, especially given that we're talking about a humanitarian crisis. So we saw the new mayor of Denver declare a state of emergency around homelessness that unlocks funds and cuts government red tape to house a thousand people by the end of the year. As our mayor, Aaron Mendenhall's policy advisor, would you recommend that she declare a state of emergency around homelessness? I would recommend we use any tool in our arsenal to combat homelessness, uh, mental health issues, everything associated with it. I think we've seen Denver do it, obviously, with their new mayor. I think Los Angeles's new mayor did this earlier this year as well. Um, what they'll cite oftentimes are two pieces, generally speaking. It's a procedural thing to help them get through either internal processes or processes close to them more quickly. And then it also, like you said, unlocks funds. The question is, it's defined pretty narrowly in the state of Utah about what a disaster is and what's available to, say, a mayor in this case um, to do. And so if there are funds available, I think that's a very compelling reason, but I'm not aware of funds that would be available for that at this point. So I don't think it's out of the question. And clearly, Mayor Mendenhall's done it multiple times since she's been in office, whether it's for natural disasters or in the wintertime for a couple of winters now about opening up a city facility um, in Sugar House to do this. Um, increasing capacity in the resource centers over the current conditional use process for the city. We did that last year. And those obviously depend on other partners to do things as well. So increasing the conditional use capacity in a resource center is great, but it only works if the operator can do it with the staff they've got or the funding they've got, right? And doing it in a state of emergency to get funding means you got to have funding to get. And there's a big question about what that would be. So I know from a city, we're still researching things. We're talking to Denver, obviously, to understand more about um, what they're hoping to tap into for funding, whether it's a state or a federal level. But I think we'd be open to any idea that would help us move the needle on this. So I want to be sure I understand you correctly. So it is possible for our mayor to declare a state of emergency around homelessness, but the city isn't sure what kind of funding or resources that would necessarily unlock and how useful they would be. Is that correct? I think if we look at the the states of emergency that were previously declared by Mayor Mendenhall, they were in the wintertime and they were weather related because of the temperature and other factors that way, right? 
So I think you need to look at the state code has laid out how you define those things disaster wise. So you got to look at that. Mm-hmm. And then the question is an open question about what funding we're talking about, because in some cases it's, it's like FEMA funding for emergency yeah. disasters, right? Or during COVID, it was stimulus funding or other funding that you can get reimbursed for services you've done. I think that there's also some cautionary stuff in there as well that, um, I think the mask mandate might be one of those things to think through a little bit that when you take action, the state legislature doesn't approve of that action or doesn't agree that it fits what their intent was, whatever it was, they can change it. Mm-hmm. So you've got to think through these things in that capacity as well, where you could lose a tool that you might want to use if you don't have the right allies lined up to make sure that it's properly used in their view as well. And mm-hmm. you got to be able to tap into the things for the things you need, like money. If we can identify that there's money available, I think any city that I'm aware of that we talk to regularly across the Western U.S. at least would be declaring this. Um, I think if you look at California and their funding, that was a state level funding. And then they have billions for housing now. But the question for them was process. How do you get it through your processes internally in your city or county or state um, and the timeframes they need to do that? So I think you have to factor all those things in to say, is this a tool that's useful? A, and it's useful right now. Uh, in this context um, without causing more problems for everybody else as well. It's interesting to me that you brought up weather because the legislature has acknowledged in the past that winter can be incredibly dangerous. But we know that heat can be just as dangerous as cold. And I mean, this has been the hottest July on Earth. Mm -hmm. So is there concern that they wouldn't understand that the summer is sort of can be just as much of an emergency? Yeah, I think from the community that I work in with homelessness and providers and advocates and everybody else, Everybody agrees this is a year-round issue. There's not a question there. The question is, how do you pay for the services and get the people to do it, right? We need more providers. We need the services. It's hard to even get money just for six months in the wintertime. So as a city, we can put resources into Vincent DePaul every year and the outreach teams. We've helped with security of previous winter overflows. Um, we need more funding for all those services because every crisis has a solution, but it's going to take resources. Well, the city has been putting money and energy into permanent supportive housing recently. We're waiting on some more permanent supportive housing units to come online, like the tiny home village and others. Could an emergency declaration speed those up? I'm not sure because, say, the point at Fair Park is already open. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's fully leased up at this point. Uh, The medically vulnerable program is not going in Salt Lake City. So jurisdictionally, you can't do an emergency order to make that go quickly, right? For Sandy necessarily, that's their process. Um, And then the third one, which is uh, the Ville 1659, doing renovation is difficult in general. I don't think that we're talking about city processes that are holding that up at this point. It's a combination of a lot of things. And so- What about the other side's tiny home village? From my understanding, uh, we knew the property that they're using had some soil contamination. So they've been going through a state process with that. Mm -hmm. So it's a state department of environmental quality issue. So I think, again, that's jurisdictional. So we keep looking to a city, say in this case, Salt Lake City. If you declare a state of emergency, could you solve this? And our point has been great. If we could do it that way, let's do it. But it's not our jurisdiction necessarily. It's also county jurisdiction. It's state. These are all the processes that are involved in this uh, that you just can't solve by one city saying, just declare it and do it as much as we would love that. So the cities of Salt Lake County just submitted their winter overflow plan to the state. Mm-hmm. In her conversation with us earlier this year, Mayor Mendenhall said that busing people from downtown to Mill Creek this past winter, you know, every night and morning was heartbreaking. I think she's right. This winter, there's a proposal that would keep the shelters open 24 hours a day. 
What did Salt Lake City offer up as part of the countywide proposal? I think the discussion wasn't necessarily cities offering everything up. I think there was discussions about can cities identify possible locations. But we also understood that the host cities, South Salt Lake, um, Midvale, Salt Lake City, they already have resource centers, including the family one in, in Midvale. Um, we're already doing quite a bit. And then Salt Lake City also hosts day services at St. Vincent de Paul and the Wigan Center downtown, along with, in our case, the Salt Lake City Rescue Mission, which operates down there as well. So we've been pretty clear that we're still going to fund um, our portion of St. Vincent de Paul for that overflow that's happening. Um, okay. We have had discussions um, with advocates who still want to do um, like code blue level stuff in private places here, like churches. But every city came forward and said, this is what we can offer. And then there's an evaluation about each of those sites to see uh, size, the physical layout of it, does it work, distance, transportation, all those kind of uh, questions you got to ask in this process. How many staff would it take to run them? And so it's been a, a trade-off sort of discussion among all the cities, which has been helpful. I think from an educational perspective, a lot of cities, ourselves included, have learned from this process. And a lot more cities are now more deeply involved in discussions about emergency services, about housing, particularly permanent supportive housing and those kind of things, but also understanding about the need. And so we need everybody sort of pull together on this and not pull apart. Can you define the code blue for me and for listeners, please? Sure, sure. So... Uh, there's a concept about code blue, which is really that in our county, there's an acknowledgement in the wintertime, the winter, the temperatures drop below freezing frequently. And so that's a threat to, to physical uh, well-being of people if they're outside. So that's where the winter overflow concept comes from. And we've done that for a number of years in this county. There is a different acknowledgement that in certain situations when the temperature, precipitation, weather, whatever it is, drops low enough that it's even worse um, that you may need more resources in an emergency basis temporarily for folks to get inside, bad storms, really cold temperatures consistently, those kind of things. Um, so this year, the legislature in their legislation included a provision for uh, times when the temperature drops below 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And so they built in the concept that the state uh, Department of Health, I believe, will monitor weather patterns, forecast a few days in advance at least, and say in each county, Here's the possibility of that temperature hitting that below 15 degrees Fahrenheit. They can declare a code blue. And then the county, in our case, um, has a plan to address that for folks. In our plan that was uh, just submitted, it has a provision in there for when the temperature drops to this level, this is what it entails. There's also certain restrictions on municipalities from enforcing no camping um, situations if that temperature drop and um, abatements and cleanings, those kind of things on a temporary basis while the, while the code blue is declared by the state. Part of the reason this all feels a little bit new is Salt Lake City has historically led on addressing homelessness during the winter, but with new laws, other cities and even counties are now required to think about winter overflow. And that's something that the Utah legislature has put into motion. What kind of impact will that have on the city's efforts? I think we're still committed to doing everything we can to help. Uh, because people are here and we have to deal with the reality that people don't have a place to go and we need to help that. What yeah. we need from a city perspective is more partners and more resources to help with that. I think from the bigger perspective, which I think is more important, frankly, is that if somebody's experiencing homelessness in another city in another county, they really shouldn't have to move across the state to get resources. You shouldn't have to come downtown to Ogden, to St. George, depending on where you are in the state. Twill's got a new one they're opening up. Um, and relocate just to get basic services. So every area in the state can have services available. 
the more families can stay intact, the more folks can stay in places that they feel comfortable where they've had jobs or housing before. Um, the more this becomes real for people as well so that everybody starts embracing this as part of who we are. Um, these are our family members and friends who are experiencing this. Um, if that happens, that's the real turning point for us. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you want to learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. Do you think that people would leave Salt Lake City if other resources opened up in other parts of the state? That's a hard question to answer. I think there are some folks who clearly come here from other parts of the state that's known well. There's a few who come from out of state as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know that most folks just voluntarily sort of jump up and leave immediately if they hear sort of rumor. There's usually some draw to where you're at. I think it does help going forward because the biggest thing we need to keep working on while we're doing the immediate needs, emergency shelter, housing, et cetera, is prevention of folks who are not experiencing homelessness now or kids who are not experiencing homelessness now and preventing them from experiencing that later on. So if they can address housing insecurity in their local area, in their city or their county, uh, if they have rent supports there or job supports, healthcare, whatever it is there, they may not ever have to make that choice about leaving, get services or not. Well, I mean, on that note, you were at a forum recently to address unsheltered people camping at Liberty Park. We know that shifting people around the city is not a solution. But the real solutions that you've pointed to, deeply affordable housing, mental and behavioral health services, they do feel far down the road. What relief can the city offer unhoused residents in the short term? Well, I think the first thing we did earlier this year was go after low-hanging fruit for housing. So um, 
we put out $6 million from the city budget to say, are there a program that could get units available quickly that would address this population we're talking about? Do it. Apply. Let's get the money out the door. The state did the same thing with their funding. And those three projects we talked about earlier received city and state funding both. Now, we knew that some of those were not traditional projects. A traditional project in my world of permanent supportive housing or deeply affordable is a developer comes in, they pull apart some units and hold those, and then it still takes them a few years to build them. Or they go for a federal tax credit, and that takes several years to get built, right? Um, these projects didn't do that. They said, uh, we have motel conversions essentially here um, and see how it works quickly. And if it works great, we learn from it. We can do it more often instead of the same pipelines we had before. And sometimes it's going to be a learning experience where we don't get the units we needed as quickly as we wanted to. So I think we've got to be creative in our housing outreach and do that differently. I think that's one starting point. So 400 units pretty quickly in a year is pretty phenomenal, to be honest with you. So that's not typical. The second piece was we've been talking to Wayne Niederhauser in the State Office of Homelessness Services about the need for more emergency shelter. We've had this gap for a while now, and we don't want to just keep building emergency shelters because they're expensive and they don't solve things. They're a temporary fix, right? But we do need more options. We're running at 99% capacity at the resource centers the last few weeks. That's functionally full. So we do need more options for folks. So working on the concepts of open-air resource centers, sanctioned camping, similar concepts that way um, is happening when Niederhauser is looking at land itself uh, for a pilot and then maybe a, a longer term version of this city council in Salt Lake City has half million allocated towards this as well. We're working with Wayne's office on that concept and uh, Mayor Mendenhall and city council here about uh, how to get that out as quickly as possible. Good programs that are not a negative impact on a neighborhood demonstrate how this works and works well and then we can replicate it. So we were hoping all that would happen this summertime. Obviously, things happen in delay, but that's still our plan to work on those two things. And then the third thing is obviously winter overflow and having more capacity for everybody this winter. So all those things have to happen, and then we have to keep doing it. Next year, we got to keep doing the housing piece, keep working on the services piece. Um, you got to line things up for multiple years to keep this moving. One of the biggest things that will happen, most likely, is that there's going to be some push at the state level for more funding. Uh, both for deeply affordable housing, which is a huge need. They've used the last two years, $105 million, I want to say, towards that from the state legislature. But that's all federal stimulus funds. So the discussion is going to be, now that those are gone, how do we as a state invest in housing consistently um, over the long term instead of just one-time monies periodically? And then the second piece is the services funding. The homeless services in this state are underfunded. They have been for many years now. COVID funds helped a lot during that period, but those are expended. They're not there anymore. And so uh, we've got to have discussions about how do you stably fund these operations? So uh, you're not losing beds here to put winter beds here. You're not cutting staff because you don't have the money or cutting beds. Those are the big discussions going to the next legislative session, most likely. Uh, so pay attention to those things. I want to talk a little bit more about sanctioned camping because I hear you saying, you know, you mentioned the city council appropriated a half a million dollars for sanctioned camping. It wasn't something that the mayor initially proposed in her budget. It sounds like you're saying the city and the state are putting their heads together right now to figure out what a site could be for a sanctioned camp. What else have you all given thought to in terms of what this program could look like? There's a lot of models out there. Um, basically, a lot of a lot of places have come to the conclusion that they can't, they couldn't get the money to build more 
uh, emergency shelters or resource centers. They couldn't catch up on the housing piece. And so this became sort of an intermediate option for a lot of places. So uh, Denver is sort of the one that cited a lot lately, at least locally. So we've done a lot of research and we've seen places that did really, really badly at it, frankly. And if you do badly at your sort of pilot, then it really poisons the sort of well for everybody else to look at it locally. So looking at places that we think have done it well, there are some things we've seen pretty consistently. Um, we've seen that they have professional staff running them. There are models to for peer sort of base stuff, but they're pretty rare. And the things we've seen that have lasted well have been uh, a contract with a, a nonprofit generally or somebody who runs it. Um, they have very clear sort of size regulations. It's not sort of you expand as big as you think or you need because we've also seen that they have um, rules and they do data collection just like we would in other programs where you come into the program, you get information um, on who you are, you have a plan because the idea is this is not permanent housing. You're, you're moving out to housing is the goal. And so you've got services on site like case management, healthcare, food, um, depending on where you're at, just whatever it is that's needed to help people move through that to another location. So really when it works well, it works a lot more like a homeless resource center, um, but just not with the bricks and mortar walls of it. It also works well for folks who don't like like dorm style living um, for whatever reason. So yeah. the concept is sometimes you have your own private small space where you can live with electricity oftentimes and kind of move through that towards more permanent options. They're not cheap to do it that way. This is not you find a vacant parking lot or a piece of land and roll out the tents kind of thing and just set up and do it. These are expensive. Um, it's got to feel safe for people living there and safe for people around it. So you don't have people setting up outside of that and the issues it causes that way. Uh, so it's a real program. In our case, working with the state makes a lot of sense because 500,000 doesn't go very far. And a mil even a million doesn't go very far in these situations. So um, we want to make sure we're not going at odds with what the state's going to do. If we can combine, great. If we need to find sort of separate ways to do it, that's fine too. Um, but we want to make sure that we're collaborating with them to get something that works um, together so it's most effective long-term because nobody wants to close it down in, say, three months if you run out of funding or have to move it if you don't have to move something that way. Well, I have to ask you, Andrew, I mean, I'm noticing this sort of undertone, you know, when I asked you about an emergency order and about sanctioned camping, like some of these big ideas. The sense I get is that the city feels if they don't do something, even if it's sort of a risky idea or a big idea or a, or a big step in a way that pleases or satisfies the state or the legislature, that they could take that power away from you. Is, does that feel like an accurate portrayal of the sort of position that the city's in? Well, I mean, I'll ask you in your experience, have you seen that happen? Yeah. I think from a- I'd like rent control. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that um, Mayor Mendenhall has been pretty clear that the goal is not to avoid conflict necessarily. The goal is to solve issues this way. But to solve things long term means you got to have allies. Um, if you're creating as many problems as you solve or more problems than you solve, you're not going to get very far. So uh, that means at times that you're going to stand with people that you may not agree with on other things. But because you agree on this, you're going to work with them. It may mean that you're looking at the long term while you're trying to deal with the, the short term. Um, it may also recognize that there are different paths to get there and we need to be open to other ideas, which we are. But that doesn't stop us from trying things. So it's not an either or proposition. It's just an attitude of going in and saying, we may try some things, but we are going to talk to our partners and allies and bring them along with us as much as we possibly can. 
The biggest and obvious reason is because everywhere you look, this is not localized. It may feel like an urban issue, right? It's a housing issue. Housing is not jurisdictional for cities. It's not counties even. If you're going to deal with a housing market, you can't deal with only a city unless you're the only city in a whole region, which we're not. So you can't just solve it that way. You need county and state. Services is exactly the same thing. In our case, it's because it's a county service. Um, Behavioral health services are county-based and they're state and federally funded. You can't just go it alone and expect to sort of do this and manage it long-term because these are systems that are bigger than us. So we are taking actions in the city. We are going to lead out whenever we think we have to, but that's not the way to solve these things long-term. If we go from crisis to crisis and just try and blow things up to make a point, um, we're going to keep creating more crises and we're not going to get ahead of this. we got to get ahead of this if we're going to solve it. Andrew Johnston, Salt Lake City Director of Homeless Policy. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Anytime. Do you have either lived experience of homelessness or provide support to people experiencing homelessness? Dr. Sarah Canham with the University of Utah's College of Social Work has been conducting research on the stigmatization and discrimination around homelessness, and she needs your help. She's looking for 40 people to attend a community consultation event on August 18th at the Downtown Salt Lake Library. She'll share her research findings and then ask you to share your experiences. It's a one-time, three-hour workshop. You'll be paid for your time, and your responses will be used anonymously. I linked the registration form in the show notes. It also has Dr. Canham's contact info if you'd like to ask her more questions. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.